Hey, everybody. So uh, today's episode of the show uh, has uh, aired before. It's the episode with my wife, Amy. And I have to say, uh, my wife, Amy Koppelman, who is a novelist and screenwriter. And um, of all the episodes uh, I've ever done, this is the one that engenders the most intense responses. The letters I've gotten thanking Amy for what she says, for her openness, for the way in which she describes finding reasons to press on, uh, finding reasons to uh, live and work. And I I feel like this time of year is the perfect time of year to receive uh, this message. So I'm putting it up. I hope you uh, dig it. Feel free to write in any kind of response you may have. And uh, happy Thanksgiving. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm so excited by my guest today, the author of three incredible books, A Mouthful of Air, I Smile Back, and Hesitation Wounds, which is coming out in November on Overlook Press. She also adapted, along with a screenwriting partner, Paige Dillon, her novel, I Smile Back, uh, wrote the screenplay for the movie and stars Sarah Silverman, Josh Charles, and Thomas Sadowski. She's also the mother of my two favorite children in the world, my children, and she's my <laughs> wife, Amy Koppelman. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Well, <laughs> listen, this is, I'm, I'm so psyched to do this, hon, because here, here's the thing. So much of this show is about people struggling to become a writer or struggling to become the best version of themselves. And I've watched... For years, I mean, I've, I've known you since we were kids, but I've watched you fight for your creative voice and fight for that creative voice to be heard. And I, I, I want to know why and, and how becoming a writer became so important to you and the ways in which you think writing uh, has saved you. Well, I've never actually thought about it, writing, in terms of having a creative voice. I just was trying to... And I'm still trying to, I guess, figure out the thoughts in my head. So I just write them down. Um, Sometimes it's just by writing through my fears. What do you mean writing through the fears? Well, like when I'm writing, I just will write and write. I mean, it might sound pretentious, but like I guess like that stream of consciousness, like I just write and write and write and write, which is why it's always very disappointing to have such short novels. Um, But I'll just write and write, and then I'll get to a scene, and that scene I'll realize is what I've been trying to write too. And then I go back and I look at all the, you know, hundreds of thousands of words that I've written over the years, and it's all there. I mean, it's amazing how powerful the subconscious is because I can see the dots. I mean, there's a lot of fat, you know, in between them. And it wasn't until after I finished A Mouthful of Air that I realized I was writing through the fear if, you know, what if I didn't get the help that I needed and for depression. You find the theme, you're saying in that book, you found the theme, the personal theme or or your reason at the end. Yeah, and I was saying that that's why I think that I wrote to, um, I mean, it sounds crazy to say to survive, but to figure out my thoughts so that I could so I could try to escape the, you know, depression or sadness that I've always had or had since I guess third grade. Yeah, I've heard people <laughs> misunderstand and I want to hear about the depression since third grade, but I, I've heard people misunderstand or or think that 
and, and I've seen you don't get annoyed very easily by responses to your work, but the one thing that I've seen drive you crazy is when people think that the work, that the narrative itself is autobiographical because often it's not the narrative that's biographical, it's the characters living out your sort of like nightmare version of the wrong road, right? Yeah, I mean, everything that I write is very personal, but, um, but you know, I don't fuck anybody else's husband, and I don't kill babies, and, you know, I try to always be home for the kids. I don't desert them, so... Right, those are the happy things <laughs> that happen in your novels. <laughs> yeah, sorry, right. Those are the things that some of my characters do, and that's what I mean, that in retrospect, I realize that I'm writing through the fear. Um, with I Smile Back, I was writing through the fear of, you know, what if I bust this all up, this little, tiny, happy world that I worked so hard to have with you and the kids, and what if, like, you know, what else do we inherit beside our eye color and hair color from our parents? Like, what if I really am my father and I just have it in me to destroy and I'm going to destroy the people I love. Of course, I had no idea that's what I was writing about till after. And it wasn't until I really finished um, Hesitation Wounds and, I don't know, maybe a year after finishing it that I realized that book was myself finally giving myself the permission to be okay and, like, to love in spite of the fact you know, that we're all going to die. Like, just just embrace it and to forgive myself. But I had no idea I was writing that. I thought I was writing about, you know, a middle-aged woman who was trying to decide if she was going to adopt a child or not. Right, which is a narrative, which is interesting because the, the difference between personal and autobiographical is sometimes lost in, their, in, an, in, an, in an age where people want to reductively give, make a short judgment in a reductive way. And I know you hate the word reductive because <laughs> in your grad school classes when people would use it, it was dismissive. But how can something be really personal and, and yet the narrative beats in it be have nothing to do with, with, the, with the writer? And do you think that should be the goal? you think it always has to be personal in some way? I guess the writers that I like the most, it has to be personal. Like there's just no way that they're not trying to get to, you know, carve down to the bone of it, like to get to their pain somehow. And those are the books that I like to read. Like what? Like Per Pedersen. I love this, as you know, this Norwegian writer, Per Pedersen. He wrote a bunch of books, but the one that just kills me again and again is called I Curse the River of Time. And I think it was one of the reasons it was so impossibly hard for me to finish Hesitation Wounds is because I kept reading I Curse the River of Time and saying, if I can't be like a quarter as good as Per Pedersen. And then finally I realized Per Pedersen was Per Pedersen and this was like the best that I could do. But um, there were certain moments where I looked at the book and I thought, well, like if I eat every page of the book, then maybe, you know, I'll be able to internalize what he's doing. I saw you actually tell him that once. I mean, the only time you met him at a, a reading I saw you whisper something to him, and he lit up. First, he couldn't tell if you were crazy. Then he realized (laughs) you were just a writer. But I think you told him you wanted to eat every page of that book, right? Well, and I think I would have, except for right around then, I read that tattoos, that the ink in tattoos causes cancer. And I thought, like, well, if the ink in tattoos causes cancer and I eat every page of this book— That's a lot of ink. That's a lot of ink. So I I forget what your original question was, but I I guess— So which are the—who are the writers? So Per Patterson— Yeah, and you asked me, do you have to be— does it have to be personal? And I don't know. Um, Paul Bowles, The Sheltering Sky, the movie goer. Uh, Walker Percy. I mean, Salinger. 
I don't think you could get more personal than that. I never read any of the Salinger biographies or saw any of um, the movies about him. I just know him through his characters, which I think is probably the only fair way to know a writer is through their characters, because that's all that really matters. That's what they're giving you as their characters. What? But his, I don't know if he had a brother or a sister or anything about his history, but to me, all those people are real. You know, Franny, Zoe, all of them are real. So I don't know if it's personal or, or autobiographical. I guess I like to, people to be honest. I want to find, like, truth in the things that I read. And the reason when I met Per Pedersen, because the part you don't are, are being nice and not telling is when I started, like, crying and wiping my snot off my arm was— huh. Because I had made gotten the opportunity to make I Smile back into a movie, and because I've never really made any money from any of my novels, and I'm lucky to be married to you, um, and that you've been able to figure out how to make things that people yeah, but, are popular. Well, if you're going to say say that. That are remunerative. No, it's not. Verbal skills aren't important to a writer. Luckily, here's the thing, though. No, I mean, whether, no, no, but I was going to no, say. No, but uh, I got to say, and I'm not going to interrupt other than to say, no, babe, because I wouldn't have become a writer if it wasn't for you. Yes. So you're, it was you who lit the path for me. Right, and right? that's why I think every woman deserves 50%. In a divorce? Good. A hundred percent. Great. Is that happening? Are you telling me that now? <laughs> yes, this is it. <laughs> Behind right. this padded oh, wall, no. 20, I have a man waiting to serve 23 years later, it's over? <laughs> no. Like this? Yeah. In a podcast studio? That's late. Yeah. That seems horrible. <laughs> really unfair. Also, and I'm not- And you could have never predicted it because 20-something years ago, there were no podcasts. There was no internet. I mean, who would have thought? Uh, honestly, also, if I, if I were served with divorce papers when we walked out of here, I wouldn't put the podcast up. <laughs> I mean, I don't think. Maybe it'd be really popular. It would go Viral. I don't know. The plan it seems flawed. But when <laughs> when you say that, but when you say the thing about being lucky and you know that that you didn't make money from your your right, you don't make money as a novelist. I mean I, that is that is true. Uh, <laughs> but you're the one who recognized a long time ago the kind of life you and I were supposed to live, and that was supposed to be a life where, you know, the thing I always talk to people about, which is figuring out the thing that they want to do that makes them feel the most alive and the most like themselves. I mean, you did light the path for me and looked at me and you were like, you're supposed to be writing and you're supposed to be doing this creative stuff and it never would have happened if you didn't very specifically well, sort of find a, and then give me all the tools I needed to do it. So right. but don't point out yourself. I do have an issue with that, with the fact that I've never made money. I think it's why I actually still feel like a fraud, like I'm not really a writer and Actually, I don't know if I told you this story, but uh, when we went, when I went to Toronto two weeks ago for the International Film Festival TIFF, I know that's what it's called now. Um, I got pulled aside by the security guards because I always get pulled aside, and I guess I have a very guilty, nervous look on my face. And they said, "Well, you're here on business," and I said. Yes, and they said, what kind of business are you here for? And I said, I'm going to the Toronto International Film Festival. And they said, well, why? What, you know, what, why are you going to the Toronto International Film Festival? And I actually hesitated. And then I thought, if you can't say it now, then you're never going to be able to say it. And so I said, I'm a writer. And then, like, you know, I felt like bells and whistles went off, like, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> That's awesome. But uh, you you fought for it harder than anybody I've ever met because— you know, you, you told me this story a long time ago, like on our fir- the first or second day we ever spent time together, that that you had you were used to write every day, and then a journal got stolen, and then you didn't write again for a long time. Is that is that right? Yes, I mean my biggest 
My first real memory of writing was being, I guess I was in third or fourth grade, and I entered my first writing contest for the Daughters of the American Revolution. And I was Amy Lynn Levine from New Jersey, and I didn't realize, like, there was no way Amy Lynn Levine from New Jersey was going to win. They weren't giving a little Jewish girl, the Daughters <laughs> of the American Revolution, weren't giving a little Jewish girl from New Jersey their prize? But I was really so happy with the Xerox thing that said that I had just, you know, applied to be, and, like, I competed in the Daughters of the American Revolution. Yeah, but, but the real thing is that you wanted to—you're saying you recognized them then that you were interested in writing. Right. You liked writing. What would you and like about I think it? that that was when I thought, oh— You know, I could be a writer. And then I remember many years later, there was this kid, Danny. And I remember on the phone, because that's when people spoke on the phone, he explained to me what Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds meant. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's so cool. And I started thinking about words. And then he gave me E. Cummings poems. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. And then he never tried to kiss me. He was working really hard. I mean, that's— I don't understand why that beat of the story escaped him. Those are awesome moves that he made. Yeah, he really—and they were really sophisticated for eighth grade in New Jersey. Yeah, the old Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, (laughs) E. Cummings. I think, and when I first started writing again after the diary and the Daughters of the American Revolution, and when it was just, I think, like 1994, and I had this blue typewriter. There was um, on 78th in Amsterdam for a long time, there was Oswald Typewriter Store, and you could still get your typewriter fixed. Oswald's went out of business, and I had to just, you know, move into the, at that time, the 20th century. Well, I guess typewriters are the 20th century too, but. Um, and so I started using a computer. But I remember when I first started writing, my first reference of, you know, great work was still E.E. E. Cummings. The fact that he didn't use capitals, I still thought at 21 was very cool. My guest today is Amy Koppelman. Her new novel, Hesitation Wounds, is out today. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode of The Moment is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy mobile payments. Maybe you're working on the next Uber, Airbnb, or GitHub then why not use the same simple payment solution that helped them become what they are today? Braintree makes mobile payments so fast, easy, and seamless, it's almost magical. Add it to your app with just a few lines of code, and you're instantly ready to accept Apple Pay, Android Pay, PayPal, Venmo, credit cards, even Bitcoin. And if some other way to pay comes along, we'll support that too. Braintree's fast payouts and continuous support means you'll always be ready, whether you're earning your first dollar or your billion. Check it out for yourself. Visit BraintreePayments.com slash moment. That's BraintreePayments.com slash moment. So, you know, you said a second ago you were in third grade when you were writing, and you all said third grade was the first time you recognized. Now you look back and you recognize that there was something, some kind of depression floating around. Do you think these things are tied together? The desire to write as a way to combat? Yes, I'm, I'm sure that they're tied together. That's what I was originally trying to say to your original question was I never thought of writing as anything other than a way of figuring out what my thoughts were that I couldn't even identify, that I didn't know why I was feeling the way that I was feeling, and I didn't know that I was writing to try to figure that out, but I would just sit at that blue typewriter and type, and then I knew that I felt better. And I I never would think about what I was typing. I would just like quietly listen to the voice in my head whatever it was saying and then I would just like transcribe it onto the typewriter and then I just kept doing that you know for years and years and years until then I finished A Mouthful of Air which was my first novel. Yeah when and I mean I remember that this whole thing of writing felt almost dangerous to you like that it brought you this tremendous amount of joy or relief but you would worry 
that somehow it was rebellious, not to not to me, not to our life, but rebellious somehow against what what was um, a life you were supposed to be living. Well, I was raised in a very 1950s kind of Catholic home life, even though I grew up in the 70s and 80s as a Jew in New Jersey. And um, my mother raised me to grow up and get married and have kids. And so when I married you, I think, you know, that was the last moment of making, you know, them happy, my parents, with my choices, because writing— well, other than who you married. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, well, you made them happy other than yeah. by deciding which person to marry. Yeah, but I mean, I was already 21, and my parents had been married from the time I was, like, 15, you know, who was going to marry me, but um, they couldn't give me away quickly enough. But um, so being a writer wasn't something that was ever spoken about. That was very other other people are writers and other people are painters. I was supposed to be a political science major because then if you're a political science major, you go to law school. And then if you go to law school, you meet a cute husband and then you marry him. Like it was always, the goal was always to get married. And did some part of you expect that for yourself? Uh, yeah. I mean, I thought that that was what I was supposed to do. And I'm really glad that I did that. And I love being married to you. But you were asking me about the date, the bad part of being a writer. It just seemed like it wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. Well, I was supposed to be, I guess, starting to have kids. Um, but the problem is once I married you and I was in um, a safe environment and I knew that you loved me, the weird thing that I still don't actually understand is that's when the depression set in so badly because I was able to actually exhale. And that happened, I guess, in the beginning of 1994. And then I started to get help. It sounds so silly now, now after Kurt Cobain killed himself. And then I think I started writing, just typing into my typewriter, not writing, writing until, you know, in that summer. But we had a friend who had an older brother, and I thought of this today for the first time in a long time. And I think my first writing was to him. Yeah. We would fax letters back and forth. And he was much older and I guess a very damaged person, but I didn't realize that, I mean, those weren't the words I would have used at the time. I just thought he understood me, like I could send writing to him, but they would only be in the form of letters, like dear, his name, and then, you know, I'd be writing whatever it was about. But and Marty, and you would write to him and his parents were Holocaust survivors. Yes. And you were, you were trying to help him figure a bunch of stuff out. And then right. You, right? Well, death has always been of interest to me, I guess. So, sure, he had Holocaust survivor parents that died when he was young. And so I guess I felt safe also talking to him because he was another person. Who was damaged. Who was damaged. And, you know, I think earlier today we were talking and you said something which we've talked about a, a bunch. But, I mean, another thing is when we got married, you made a decision not to be self-destructive. And so you didn't have an outlet which allowed the, de like, um... Yeah, well, for many years, um, our kids know this, so I don't feel uncomfortable saying this, I was very, very um, bulimic. Um, by the time I moved in with you, I mean, I wasn't satisfied till there was, you know, blood all over the bathroom tiles. Um, and then when I moved in with you, it was the first n morning after moving in with you, and I went to take a garbage bag because I was going to be very neat because it was your apartment. And I don't know, there was a voice in my head that said, you can't do this. Like, he loves you and you can't do this. And so I never threw up again. But I didn't know how to eat. And as a bulimic, I was very highly functioning. I went to an Ivy League school. I could drive. I wasn't scared of people. I wasn't scared of going out. I wore makeup and blue dry my hair. And then as soon as I stopped doing that, which you would think would be 
the healthier move, that's when then I got more, I guess, sick. But I don't think of depression like a sickness, but I guess that's the word for it. What do you mean you don't think of it as a sickness? I mean, of course, it's a sickness, but it just still always, you know, that's like the funny thing about depression is that even now I can understand it. I can understand the physiological parts of it. I can understand that it's not my fault, but the nature of depression makes you hate yourself. So you keep thinking like, if I was just a little stronger, if I was just, you know, I mean, I have everything I could possibly want. I have a loving husband. I'm living in a safe place. And so, you know, you think, well, what's your problem? Like fucking get over it. And you can try really, really hard. But what I know now that I didn't know then was that it wasn't my fault. It is your fault once you don't get the help you need. And it is your fault if you don't take medication. But it's not your fault for feeling like if you could just be stronger, you could overcome it because that is the nature of depression. That it's this this hopelessness with uh, self-hatred that says, come on, don't give into this. Or you're a wimp if you give into it. Yes. And you still sometimes, find, even though you're sort of a, a big advocate for this stuff, your books have uh, been given to, many people have given your books to shrinks and said, this finally explains who I am. This explains the way I feel. Your books um, absolutely celebrate people who are able to bash through it and live. But you're saying you still, part of you still doesn't want to forgive yourself for being susceptible to depression? Yeah, I mean, I still can't really forgive myself for not breastfeeding Anna, which is what my first book came from was I finally started taking antidepressants when Sam was like two. and um, Sam's our first child and Anna our second. You know, everything changed, just like, you know, all the cliches. Everything went from black and white to technicolor. And um, I could feel and I wasn't numb and the anxiety wasn't crippling. I mean, I think for the first year of Sam's life, I didn't sleep. I think I had like toothpicks in my eyes, keeping them open because I was scared, you know, the poster on the wall was going to fall on him and kill him and it'd be my fault. And then I went off antidepressant medication because they weren't sure at the time, you know, what would go through the bloodstream to the child. And I spent all that time, all those nine months thinking, I can't wait to take Zoloft again. I can't wait to take Zoloft again. I mean, I would look at the little jar of Zoloft and think, I can't wait to take that again and to feel okay again. And then I had her and I started breastfeeding her. And um, I couldn't believe that I couldn't be strong enough in my head to figure out how to keep breastfeeding her, that I was going to have to stop breastfeeding her because I was so weak. And and then so for a week or ten days, I I didn't breastfeed. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell you. I didn't tell my psychiatrist. And then one day, I realized I was sitting on the bed and I was breastfeeding her. And I saw that I was like about to hit a wall a million miles an hour. And I told you. And I remember I thought of this the other day that I said when I took the Zoloft, can you please check under my tongue to make sure that I had actually taken it? Because even in those ten days, I didn't trust that I wasn't going to not swallow it because I just hated myself for not being strong enough to... And then once it kicked in, you felt better again. But I still haven't forgiven myself for not breathing, breastfeeding her, even though she's, you know, a sturdy person, you know, and I would see other mothers and they'd be like, I breastfed my child for till he was four years old and teething. And I would know, like, that's not really good, but I would still feel bad. Like, and they'd go, like, how long did you breastfeed her? You know, moms do that. They're, like, always comparing and contrasting. When did he walk? When did she walk? Well, in your books, 
Your books are written with so much generosity, uh, except uh, you are merciless when it comes to gaggles of judgmental moms. They're kind of like the villains throughout certainly two and a half of your books. We, and I include myself because I have been in many gaggles of moms, moms are horrible. Moms are worse than like, you know, middle school, elementary school girls. In fact, they get to the, the like if you were a really big bitch in, in middle school, all those tools really help as a mom, which is why I've always felt bad that, you know, I'm, <laughs> that I wasn't better at figuring out how to make my kids more popular by being a cooler mom. Because I've still always been kind of like a freaky mom. Although everyone loves to send their kids, used to love to send their kids over to our house, except for each time I published a book. Why? What would happen when you would publish a book? Well, when my first book got um, published, which has infanticide in it. To wonderful reviews, <laughs> I should point out. The phone really stopped ringing. The second book, when she leaves the kids, you know, people are really desperate for good child care. So, you know, they still sent their kids over. Because Not they knew much. that you'd be nice to their kids. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, this theme in, in, is in your books um, where characters worry about the judgment of others. Or they're, uh, they don't like themselves because... They know they shouldn't care about being judged by others, but they do care. You've ra- you know, your books wrestle with that a, a lot. Why do you think that is? Because I wrestle with that. You know, I, um, on one hand, I don't care, you know, like there was this one girl, like you remember her. Um, by girl, you're talking about another like woman in her oh, 40s like you, yeah, right? Yeah, middle-aged woman. Okay, sorry. good. Oh my God, I just became my mom because my mom, who's 70, basically still says she's going with the girls to lunch. And I'm always like, they're not girls, but... Um, Anyway, they're they're actually old people, but um, no, I think you can call the girls the girls again in your seventies. <laughs> I'm getting together with the girls. <laughs> yeah, hey, but, girls! That's Gary Goldman's line, isn't it? Doesn't Gary Goldman say that? Uh, that's how you can uh, curry favor to any seventy year old uh, woman is by being like, "You and the girls should come over tomorrow." <laughs> yeah, I have. Ver- I don't know if that's exactly his line because I have a very bad uh, retrieval mechanism. I. Blame it on the Zoloft, but I'm sure it is middle age. And this week I realized exactly what it looks like. Like if I could draw a picture, it looks like when you go to um, an arcade and there are those games like where the thingy comes down to get the toy, the claw comes down to get the toy, and like it's fighting to get the toy and it almost gets the toy and then like the little toy falls out of its claw. Yeah, the 40s are real fun, aren't they? Wait, (laughs) wait, so you were saying there's this one woman uh, you were thinking about the other day. Yeah, who's not a girl, but she was more a girl, you know, when we were younger, she was younger too. And um, every time we went, she was a friend of your sister's, and every time we went to an event for your sister's, she would say to me, why are you wearing black? And, you know, she was somebody who was always wearing, you know, the particular ink color of the season. And, I mean, I wouldn't say to her, like, why are you wearing black? And, like, you know, why is your husband fucking the nurse? But, like... She would constantly say this to me, and I would constantly be like, oh, well, you know, I like black, and try to think of an answer. And then I would leave really hating myself because I didn't even like the girl, so why would I care if she— and I wanted to wear— like, why? And so that duality, I don't know why I want to be accepted, but, but I think everybody has some conflict with wanting the people who don't understand them to understand them. But the older I get, the one— good thing about being in your 40s is you start to care less. About others' opinions. Yeah, because everybody who was so sure of what to wear and what to do, you know, you watch their lives and you realize they didn't really know. No one really knows. You know, no one knows if the hand of fate's going to slap them. No one knows if their husband's going to leave them, if they're going to leave their husband, (laughs) if they're going to have a sick kid. You know, so in a way, those people are luckier because I remember I had a friend growing up and 
like she knew when she was going to get a manicure for the prom in like September. And I used to think it would be so great to be her and just to only think about that instead of walking around like in a deep funk all the time. Look, you know, your strength is the thing that's always been the most inspiring to me because, and it's why it's worth it to have this conversation, even if it's a very personal conversation, because, you know, AIM, your ability to turn yourself into this stuff, not only someone highly functioning, but someone who's thriving despite a lot of really difficult personal hardships when you were young is kind of incredible because— And you say personal hardships, and as soon as you say that, I go, what kind of hardships did you have? Like, neither of your parents died. You had a car. Like, you know, I— it's like an immediate reflex. Yeah, but on the other hand, um, you know, you've said many times that, uh, for instance, I Smile Back, the movie, you've talked about, you've talked about that, that when you were writing Sarah's character, who's this incredibly uh, self-destructive whirlwind, um, not only self-destructive, but a force of destruction in, in, uh, to anyone who, who loves her, that a lot of what you were wondering about was the, the consequence of the possibility of inheriting that kind of behavior down through, like, the genetic and behavioral chain from from your parents, right? Yeah, and I, I know now and I feel comfortable knowing that I am not going to bust this all up. But what I was also trying to figure out was, you know, you can say you're sorry. You can hurt—you can be a parent and you can hurt your children and you can say you're sorry. You can be the best possible scenario where you come back and you end up being a great grandparent. Um, but you can't— Give your kids back their childhood, and you can't reverse the damage that you've done. Um, yeah, but then what makes you—what made you—because one of the great, really inspiring, amazing things is and when you decided you were going to do this, so you started typing, and this episode is brought to you by Oswald's Typewriters and Zoloft. <laughs> those, those are the sponsors, obviously, of the show. Um, but when you— um, <laughs> when, no, but when you started typing and then you decided you were going to go from that into becoming a writer, you know, you, you applied to grad school because people will say sometimes this question I've asked a lot on the show and I've tried to figure out, right, the difference between delusion and, and talent or when someone wants to be a writer and, and can they. And although you had a, all the raw materials and when people read your books now, they're, they are so polished and everybody remarks on your sentences and on the fact that you write in this incredibly... Uh, um, the prose is elegant and simple and locked down and squeezed tight, and um, your books read like prose poems in a way. And that, in the beginning, you really had no technique, right? <laughs> you would say that, right? I mean, when when well, you, I I know now 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 I can look for things like you were talking about more like, um, I forget the word you used, uh, but like, you know, writerly things. Like now I understand when I'm reading Per Pedersen, when he's doing something with a sentence, I understand how he's like, you know, bending that sentence, how he's crafting that sentence. And, and that's what made it so hard for me to fitness hesitation wounds because I would look at what he did and be like, wow, like I just couldn't believe that he was able to accomplish so much you know, gained so much emotional depth, depth, bleh, depth in, um, you know, such a small, simple, pretty sentence. Um, I I know that now, but when I first started writing, I was really only writing. 
I don't know what I was thinking. I don't even know how I thought that there was even a remote chance that I could get into um, Columbia. Right, but I was say, for some went- reason, I, I thought it, but there's this little part of me, and I was thinking about this when you were talking about deciding for you, deci- for me telling you to become a writer, and I do think this is true. I do think inside everybody's head, if you really listen close enough, you know who you are and what you want to be. Like, you can hear it. Like, sometimes it's whispering, sometimes it's louder, but... I knew when I wasn't, you know, really busy with self-flagellation that I wanted to be a writer. I didn't know what that meant or how good a writer I could be. Once we went to the bottom line years and years ago, and I I remember there were like four people that were really good songwriters, and there was a fifth person that was terrible. And I remember saying to you, like, but no one tells the fifth person, and how do you know I'm not the fifth person? And you kept saying, just keep writing. Um, You're not the fifth person, but... um, Well, because you really had something to say, and you were so determined to find a way to say it well. I was more just determined to live. I really wanted to kill myself very, very badly, and you would leave for work, and that's all I wanted, but you were so nice to me, and I remember I used to lie in bed in the dark with the shades drawn and think, like, close my eyes and think, like, if only, like, these angels could come down and get me so, like, I could die, but he could come home and not think it was his fault because I didn't want to ruin your life. Well, thank you for that. (laughs) And, um... I remember Kurt Cobain killed himself, and I remember you calling me, and I remember turning on the news, and there was that MTV VJ, that guy. Alan Hunter or Mark Goodman. Must have been Mark I don't know. And he was talking about it, and he was describing different things that Kurt Cobain did. I mean, I ignored the heroin at the time and all the other things that when I watch the documentary now, it makes me feel very silly. And then I think you were 22 years old. Of course, you romanticized uh, suicide then. But um, I realized, like, I had the same kind of stomach pain. I wasn't functioning. You would leave for work. I would get right in bed. I would spend the whole day readying myself so that when you got home, I could smile and be like, hi, how was your day? And so I had been carrying around a card in my wallet for a while, and I called the doctor, and that's when I started getting help. And after seeing Dr. and talking to her, I guess— I knew that talking made me feel better, so writing was like talking. But it wasn't until I decided to have Sam, our son, that I really decided, like, okay, well, you know, there's no going back now. Like, now you're in it. So I think I continued to write just to help me stay in it. And I think that that's... I think that's very important. I mean, I think some people garden for that reason, and some people um, knit (laughs) um, or cook... You know, you need a reason to want to continue. That's not fair to do to the kid. Um, And I hope that I've not made him feel like he has a responsibility for my continuance. But the writing only became a byproduct of wanting to be, to continue to be a good wife and mother. And so it was just like when I wasn't in therapy, then I could write because there's similar things. But then at a certain point, um, and, you know, you were a kid, and we were kids, you know. Um, I mean, I, I think I was 25 and you were 21 when we got married. And um, we're just, we just happened to be lucky that uh, we made a choice when we were young to be truthful with one another and be in, you know, really be in it together, as you were saying. So that when you, when you started d- really doing this and you would share the work with me and we would talk about it, Yes, it was therapeutic to you, but beyond that, you did want to be, you did feel like there was some value in what you were doing. Um, you wanted to learn to be really, you did want to find a way to get good at it. Right. You didn't say like, I should publish this now. You were like, I need to find a way to get really good at this thing because I love, 
I love doing it. And I think uh, like you did well, feel like you had something to share, and you were a point well, of view. Well, I remember when you gave me Franny and Zoe, and I remember you reading that book, and it was one of the first things that I was able to start to was I able to read once. I started reading again because there were like, I don't know, 15 years that I didn't really read. It's I don't know how I got through high school and college, but— um, Yeah, and I, I read Ivy it. League college. <laughs> and I read it, but I didn't, and I didn't cheat. Um, but uh, I remember getting to the line where Franny says she's tired. And I remember it's that magic that happens when you read and a writer is able to put into words the feelings that you're feeling. And you're able to not feel lonely. And that's what I said to Per Pedersen um, when I met him, because what I was saying earlier is when I uh, co-wrote the screenplay with my friend Paige and we got to get it made into a movie. And so then, of course, I thought, you know, oh, like maybe I could have a career as a screenwriter. I could make money then and then I'd be a real writer. And I started thinking and trying to write from the outside in. You know, what are the beats of a TV show? You know, what kind of plot points do you need? And I don't write from that place, but I I guess part of me wishes I did. Um, I I think I'd be a more popular, accessible writer. And um, I started thinking that way. And then I went and met Per Pedersen, and I saw him. And there were so many times that I felt so lonely and so many different writers that made me know that I wasn't alone that when I looked at him, I thought, like, I can't betray that. Like, I can't betray what he's gives to me, I can't worry about being a screenwriter and successful. I just have to worry that, like, even if this book, Hesitation Wounds, only sells a couple thousand copies, like all my other books, like, maybe 500 of those people that aren't related to me or our close friends who bought the book, uh, maybe it will mean something to them. And that's why I guess I wanted to get good at it, because at least if I could get good at it, then there was the hope that maybe I could touch somebody like I'd been touched by writers. That's, I guess, the reason I write for connection, which is a weird thing because you read when you're alone. And Per Pedersen was saying a book is not alive unless somebody's reading it. So it's a weird thing to think that you can feel less lonely in such an isolating endeavor as reading. But when I'm with characters like the people in Hesitation Wounds, I've been very much missing them because for so many years we could spend the days together and they're safe. I'm not schizophrenic, but like, you know, I understand them and they understand me and Franny understood me and because of my bad retrieval mechanism, I can't think of the other characters, but I'm sure you could remind me of who they were. (laughs) Well, sure, like the characters in in Philip Roth's American Pastoral. Yeah, or like Everyman. I read Philip Roth's Everyman and I understood my father, and I understood that really almost everything that he did to me, to my family, to himself, had nothing to do with me. I actually wrote this whole, like, letter to Philip Roth, and I remember calling you from outside the kids' elementary school, and you saying, like, you really want to send that letter? I was like, oh, well, he's never going to get the letter anyway. It's like putting all my feelings in a glass bottle and, you know, dropping it into the Hudson River. But then he wrote back, and so um, that was exciting. Yeah, that was incredible. I remember seeing that, that little envelope. <laughs> yeah, and, you opened it. And I couldn't believe that was it. was so Philip bad. Roth. You did oh, the I was thing like, that Philip parents, Roth. parents used to do it with college acceptances. You opened it on the elevator, but you had a very big smile when you came in. I sure did. He wrote you back. He wrote you back. Well, and he wrote, uh, if, if this book brought you solace, I'm glad, or something like that. And it did. Well, yeah. And, and, and I guess also for me, um, writing— is the art form, well, 
music, but writing is the art form that, I mean, this sounds like so like pretentious when you say it, but like gives me the most faith in humanity. It's beauty to me. I remember reading this book, um, a World of Yesterday, the Stephen Swig book. I can't, how could I not remember? Oh, Stefan Swig. So, yeah. <laughs> and I guess in Vienna, I'm going to get this all wrong, but I guess before, you know, in between World War I and World War II, there was this group of people, and they really thought, like, art would be the salvation for humanity and, you know, that peace could be achieved through the beauty of art. And I guess art or flowers or um, the look in a little kid's eyes those are the things that I hold on to. I, I used to have, like, when I wasn't as good as I am now, like, in terms of not being sad, when I wasn't as not sad as, when I wasn't as happy as I am now, um, I used to have these fade to black, thank you, these fade to black moments. And I would be like, you know, walking down the street with one of the kids. And I think, like, you know, if it all, if it, everything just faded to black right now, that would be great because, you know, it'd be like a happy moment, maybe getting a candy bar at like the little after-school pharmacy. But when I was in Toronto, somebody said to me, like, you know, if you could speak to Lainey, that's the character in I Smell Back, like, what what would you tell her? Like, or what would you tell somebody who is very depressed? Like, I'm a recoup- recovering alcoholic. She said to me, I have a kid. Like, what would you tell somebody? And I thought about it, and I, and I, I had made it through all these interviews without crying, and I said, I would just tell them to hold on to the ice cream cone. And she looked at me and like, I realized that made no sense to anybody but me, which is not a unique experience for me. And I said like, you know, I would say like, think of the happiest moment that you could possibly think of. And I I know what mine is, which has to do with an ice cream cone. So um, we were sitting by this little fountain outside of Starbucks and there was a Haagen-Dazs there. And I was sitting next to you. You were on my left. I was on the right of the fountain. And... We were watching, like, the kids, like, I don't know, play with their ice cream cones or run around like, oh, you know, don't go too close to the curb. You're going to get hit by a car. And it was a nice day, like, not any particular beautiful day or something like that. It was just, like, you know, a regular day. And I remember thinking, like, this is it. Like, this is why we live, like, just to see for this kind of happiness. And I don't want it to fade to black. I'm just going to hold on to the next time we get to go to Hagen Dazs. And I order a fat-free, extra-small ice cream. (laughs) But, uh, you know, so I don't get fat, God forbid. Um, I'm making fun of myself to try to not cry. Anyway, um, so that's what I said to the woman. And um, I think writing for me has just been a means to an end of, like, you know, connecting the dots of time between each moment of happiness and I'm lucky because I get to see them all the time. And I do think that that's one thing that people who've had depression or have had hard times that fall under, you know, any classification. I think that most of us have a keen appreciation just for like, you know, a very simple memory, like like an ice cream cone or a slice of pizza or just holding the person you love's hand at the movie theater or, you know, picking up the popcorn after you spilt it at the movie theater. But um And I've been thinking a lot about divorce because we are middle-aged and so many people are having divorce. And I think for a lot of them, they just forgot. Like, those little tiny moments don't mean anything. Like, they can't hear it or they can't see it. So in a way, I feel very lucky because there's medicine, so I don't have to be stuck. I can feel every feeling without feeling drowned by it. 
and I know what's important. And, and in, in each of your books, in each, each of your books has, you know, the characters, it seems like they have a chance to grab for this. And the third book, Hesitation Wounds, finally is a book that has hope in it. Um, but well, in the, I always wrote thinking that the hope would be for the person who read the book. Like, yeah. you know, in the first book, you can take medicine. In the second book, like, well, you could take medicine. In the third book, and of course I wasn't, I, I think I was just saying like, it's okay. You can be happy. Like I was giving myself permission. At the end when I looked back, and of course I finished it the week Sam graduated high school, I think. So, you know, nothing like Freudian about that. But um, I wrote and wrote for many years, like I said, that I do till I found the last moment of this book. And it's a moment where it's snowing and there's this woman and she's with her child and the child has never seen snow before and the child's adopted and the child says, stick out your tongue. And for years, I tried to make the book balance all on that moment, the moment where you decide, are you going to stick out your tongue and taste the snow, or are you going to keep or, or not? And I couldn't figure out how to like mechanically make the whole book balance on that one moment, so it's going to the graveyard where this scene takes place, because I needed more time. Um, but the whole book for me, the whole like eight or nine years or however long it took me to write that book, was all that moment of deciding if you're going to stick out your tongue or not, which sounds like so silly. Like, of course no, you sounds, stick out your tongue. It doesn't sound silly at all because you're talking about— But to live or to love or to be in it, like to be here, to get to experience life until it's taken away from you, it's all just a matter of just sticking out your tongue. Today we were running through the street— it was raining, and um, Sam had come home from college, and I laughed, and I said, running through the rain with abandon, laughing without fear. And he's like, what's that? And I realized, like, I was quoting myself, which is, like, worse than calling yourself, like, by your own name. And that must be, like, I don't know what book I put that in. But we were running through the rain, and I was laughing without fear. And I, I thought, well, that's fucking great. <laughs> <laughs> and I was happy to be me. Well, one of the things people who know you always talk about is your ability to live in the present and that you work so hard to do it. And your characters in these books, it seems like you try to point them. There are moments where they're pointed toward it and they either they can or they can't get there. And it seems like something you think about an awful lot. Well, I do think mental illness or chemical imbalance or, you know, whatever the like parent umbrella term is, I think one of the most frustrating things is that you can see it, but you feel like you can't touch it. It's like there's two things. I mean, I'm not like an expert, but in my experience, two things that are so frustrating with depression are, one, you have no ability to modulate the volume or to know if the punch really had any impact. It all is loud and it all hurts. And the other is you can see happiness and you could want it. But there's like this gauzy film around you and you just can't get to it. So when you get the relief of being able to take medication and like it lifts the film like a garage door or something and you're able to touch the feelings that you're trying to, that you that you know that you want to have but you're not able to get to, it. I want that for all of my characters because I like that for all people to be able to, to get to where like they can be who they want to be. and um, No, you you achieve that. What, what you're talking about is what happens in your books. Um, sometimes the character can't quite stay there um, in the way that you've found a way to stay there in, in life. Um, when you 
you know, you applied to Columbia, what, three times? Yep. To grad school? You got rejected twice, and then you got in. Yes. And you kept working and kept writing. And then when you got there, I remember— Oh, yeah, it's true. It was a huge disappointment. Well, sure. <laughs> there were problems with it, although the, there were great teachers, I remember you saying. But but here's here's what I want to know. Oh, when, when you— I thought you were going to talk about, like, when I— when I was trying to get into Columbia, I was taking these continuing education yeah. classes um, at night. And I had no idea how lucky I was that I was taking classes with Michael Cunningham, who is the most beautiful writer and the most, um, people always overuse this word, but like generous teacher. And so for a couple of years, I would take these classes and, you know, meet once a week or twice a week. And it would be me and somebody who was a plumber and a woman who was a secretary and an accountant. And people would write stuff and everything was raw and sloppy. And, you know, but the stuff was really moving. Like I'd come home and be like, wow, this guy wrote about, you know, it was real. And then I kept getting rejected from Columbia. And I kept thinking, geez, like I, the writers they have at Columbia must be like fucking unbelievable because, I mean, the continuing education writers were blowing my mind away. And when I finally got to Columbia and was in class, it was that outsider thing that, you know, I had as a little kid and as a mom or always have where like I remember the first day because, um, as you know, I always would say I'm quitting the first day of every class that I've taken since we've been married. And all the people were speaking this language that sounded foreign to me, but all they were saying was Dostoevsky or Tolstoy or Chekhov. And I hadn't heard these wor- these words, but they sounded like so intimidating and scary to me. And they all wrote these perfect sentences like, long sentences with commas and no one had a spelling mistake and they would stand with their shoulder shoulders back and like if you gave them comments they would look at you you know they felt secure enough not to listen to your comments and I you know didn't know any of those books at the time and you know people would say to me about my writing like oh my god you're such a cliche no one's gonna ever read that who's gonna ever want to read that and I would like go into the bathroom stall and cry but um the thing that was disappointing about Columbia was, you know, this, the stories that most of those people told were very boring. Like, there are only so many bass, you know, coming out bass fishing stories that one person, you know, can read. Um, <laughs> and I also yeah. remember the other thing that was very disappointing about Columbia, and this I didn't understand, and I, I still don't understand it, is we would read these things that were really amazing. Like, uh, we read Jesus's Son, or I was just telling somebody the other day, somebody said, well, you know, Grace Paley— is not really a real writer because she's never written a novel. And I was like, you put like two fucking sentences together, two, a paragraph, like they're as good as Grace Paley, and then we can talk. He happened to also be the bass fishing story guy. So people really oohed and odd from his piece, so he felt very good saying this, but, you know. But at the time, how did you—so it's funny now when you, like, tell the story. Right. But at the time, this is what what's true, right? Because— at a certain point, you decided you weren't allowed to write when you were young, right? Because it was some kind of betrayal of what was expected of you. Right. And if you started to do that, you were a bad person because you'd have to tell the truth. And if you told the truth about your family, you were betraying something, right? Right. So you didn't read for a long time, even though that brought you the greatest solace. I didn't read since eighth grade because right. I was read. too depressed. And so you found your way into, you know, University of Pennsylvania, political science major, <laughs> all this stuff. And you weren't doing the stuff that was interesting to you. Right. But as a result of that, you got to grad school, and you didn't share the language with them. I never said reductive. There you go. And you didn't know the books. And in fact, you didn't 
have any grasp of grammar. No. And so how did you keep at it? Like, because, you know, how did you know you weren't? (sighs) I don't know because it's the craziest thing. I mean, like, I mean, you know, a mouthful of air. There was no agent in New York City. I mean, I was rejected by every single agent, really, in New York City. But a couple things are important to note, which is, one, you were out of that class of people at Columbia. You were the first person published. I don't know. Maybe there was uh, one other person in that class published right away. Torre was in that class, and he was amazing, and you always said he was Torre nice was and incredible. Great, he, he was a great, and he was the only person who wrote shit that popped. His, yeah, he was, T-O-U-R-E, I was only with, Torre, he's a famous writer, but he was the only other person, right? right? He wrote this Kennedy fried chicken story, and even with my bad memory, I remember it. I remember going like, well, wow. I mean, that was even better than the people in the continuing education class. <laughs> right, that was the you knew. That was on a different level of writing. Right. So he was in your class and yes. he got success, but you were you were somehow like you kept going. Like the book seemed impossible to you at first. Yeah. Like you didn't you I mean even to approach reading the Russian stuff, like there was so much American stuff that that to even get there. I remember in the beginning when you had to write your first papers. Yes. It seemed impossible to you. And you had to do it yourself. Like there was no one I, I was working all the time. Like, there was no one to help you. Right. And I don't know. I mean, I remember going to, I got rejected. The second time I got rejected, I remember taking Sam. I was going to play like the little cute kid card. Also, no one, there was no one else to watch him. And I remember going to the continuing education office and waiting outside for office hours for the head Professor Locke to come. He was the head of the writing program. And he came and I finally met with him and I sat down and Sam was like right next to me, very little on the stool. And I said, well, you know, I just want you to know, like if somebody drops out like in August, like even if it's like August 25th, like I'll come to the writing program. Like if you want to put me on a wait list. And he said, well, you know, if we wanted to put you on the wait list, we, we would have put you on the wait list. And then I was like, oh. And then I still applied again the next year because, I don't know, it's a little rebellious person in me, I guess. Yeah. but Like, it, I'm going to get you to accept me. How do you know when something's done? Because you do work on these books for like seven years, right? You write, and you do write, your books are incredibly tight. They're short. As I said, there's not a word wasted. When I can't find anything else to cut. I remember there was one lesson that Michael taught us, which was when you start rewriting the same sentences and you're just writing them differently, but you're not writing them better, like, that's when you know that you have to stop. So you're that harsh a critic on yourself, but what is it that also makes you love to collect and almost relish when you get rejected by some big publisher? And your book, Hesitation, was coming out on a great publisher, Overlook Press, a hallmark indie publishing company, but... When I might get into be in bookstores this time. Yeah, you're going to have hardcover books in bookstores. <laughs> and I'm going to get a hardcover book again because my I Smile Back 81, not that I was counting, people passed on I Smile Back till $2 radio yeah. bought I Smile Back. But, and then, you know, you, you were able to write this script and get this movie made. But what is it in you? Like, I remember some of the, some of the rejection letters you got. You would read them out loud and pin them on the wall and not in the way— uh, there was something about them. They would say, this is the most accurate depiction of depression I've ever read. This book is too, even on hesitation was, this is too true to life. This is, this feels too painful. What is it about that that gives you satisfaction, do you think? I guess I think that I did what I was supposed to do. You know, I was honest to those feelings and that person might not have wanted those feelings, doesn't want to print those feelings. But I know like I did my job. The one I kept on the wall for years is this too closely mirrors the disappointments in life. And I remember punching my arms into the air and going, like, I did it because that's what I wanted to do. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. if they, I never mind rejections if they're fair. You know, if you want to say this is too dark or too depressing, like, that's fine. Right. You'll take it. Yeah. But, but what is it that allows you to keep dreaming? Because, and, and not, that's not because of Anna or Sammy or me. I mean, you know, 
when you, I think about how I Smile Back got made into a movie, as somebody who makes movies, it's almost unbelievable to me that you were able to do the thing that you did. And, and it is all about you somehow finding, and I guess this is my question is, since you wear on the surface this, uh, it's not exactly insecurity, but this humility that I know is genuine, you're genuinely humble, but... You know, you heard Sarah Silverman on the Howard Stern Show. You didn't know Sarah Silverman. I didn't know Sarah Silverman. And something about her voice made you know she could star in this movie uh, about this very harrowing thing. What made you think that it was possible, do you think, and that you could do it? You could write the movie and that you could find a way to get her into the movie? You know, on one hand, I would say, I don't know, but I think really it's just like, it's very simple. Like, I'm alive, so I might as well try. Like... None of it really matters, you know, if you try and you fail or you get rejected. Like, if you spent the majority of your, you know, if you spend half your life fearing death and then you're finally going like, okay, I get that, that's going to happen, but while I'm alive, I'm going to make the most of it, then like, you know, how bad, what, what's she going to say no? Like, okay, I just wanted her to read the book. I knew from the tone in her voice, I had never seen her comedy. I had never seen her TV show. I mean, I knew who she was because she's like every Jewish boy's idol. Like they all like, oh, Sarah Silverman. But that was the only manner in which I knew her. And then I heard her talking and I I just thought, you know, her heart's going to understand my art. I wanted to be understood. It's like when I finished my first book and I couldn't get an agent, I saw on page six where Joan Didion lived. And I just thought, okay, like I'm not going to get an agent, but I'm going to drop my book off at her house, and maybe she'll write me back because I just want to know, like, am I, a, am I a real writer? I thought it's also like a gift to myself that I could drop something. You know, I finished something. I could drop it. And that was probably the biggest accomplishment when she wrote back, like, dear Amy, you are a real writer. And, you know, if you just remember those things and you don't remember the rejections, then you look back and it's like 20-something years later since 1994, and again I applied for a Guggenheim Award, and again I'll probably get rejected, but it doesn't matter because, you know, in five years I might get one, and then I won't remember the rejections. I'll just remember the acceptance. What, what was it like then? So you, you found a manager after your second book, and the manager was able to get the book to Sarah Silverman. You then met her. She told you that if you... What'd she say? If the if you wrote a script that didn't suck, she would be in it. Yeah, that was my bar. It just like had to not suck. You and Paige went off and wrote the script. Sarah gave you notes, really great guidance. You then got to make the film with her. And then it got into Sundance and Toronto and Deauville and all these other places. And it got distribution and it's coming out all across the country. What did it feel like to be on the film festival circuit with her? Because you've gone to these places with her and have been able to... Really, you know, in the way that the film world works, I mean, you, you, you were legitimized. Well, well can you, I, can you, can you own that now? Can, can you? No, I. I, I mean, mean, I know you told the story about you know telling and you, the security guard. You mean like the passport off the, the customs officer? Yeah, the custom guard. But can you really? Can you own it that it's a real thing now? What did it feel like to be on the film festival circuit? I was able to really enjoy the film festival, especially the Toronto Film Festival, because no matter what people think of the movie, if they like it, if they don't like it, if they think they've seen the story a million times before or whatever, they all really appreciate Sarah's performance. And so I think I was right. Like, 
I knew it, and everybody told me I was crazy, but I knew her heart would understand my heart, and it and did. It did. <laughs> no, and anyone who watches the movie will understand your heart. And one thing I really think is important to say is that even if you sound halting, and your humility is uh, at the surface, and we understand the cost of this stuff, on the page you're incredibly confident and you're incredibly in control, and the reader feels exactly the emotions that you want the reader to feel. And when one reads Hesitation Wounds, one comes away understanding exactly what you think about how people should live. And that's a really beautiful and important thing, Aim. <laughs> well, people should live by living <laughs> and loving the people that they love. It's really kind of a very simple thing. If you're lucky enough to have shelter and food and, you know, a job, access to medical care, so... You can get better if you have depression or whatever. You know, or uh, tuberculosis. Or tuber <laughs> yeah, that's coming back, I hear. You want to read a good book about tuberculosis, read Nemesis by Philip Roth. He really knows. They keep calling those his short novels, and I keep going like, oh, shit, if that's a short novel. Huh. Um, oh, he's like his little His, his little, little novels. novels. I'm like, but that's like three times as long as my novels. But well, that's it. A Hesitation Wound, shorter than Philip Roth's short books. <laughs> that's what could be better in than that. Yeah. Hey, Aim. Sorry. Yes. Love you, honey. Love you, too. Well, there you go. <laughs> um, if anyone sees our kids trying to listen to this, don't, don't let them listen to it. <laughs> I'm so happy this is over. As I'm sure we all are. <laughs> no, listen. Um, you can find Amy on Twitter. I'll say as, as great as she is at a lot of things, she's terrible. You're terrible at Twitter. Yeah, I spammed Twitter this week. I was trying to um, do social media and try to get reviews. Didn't work out. Well, uh, but you can still follow her on Twitter. Maybe by the time you get there, she'll understand how to use it. And, uh, Aim, I, I just could not salute you more as a writer and artist. You're a constant inspiration to me every day of my life. So, you know, people follow you. Maybe uh, they'll be able to get inspired. And they should definitely read your books and go see the movie. Hesitation Wounds out in November. I smile back in theaters October 23rd. <laughs> you can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. My email is themomentbk at gmail.com. And please spread the word about the podcast. Thanks. Talk to you soon.